We are back on the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, following our week away. And my word, it is so nice to be back. But now we're back, I want to make the show better than ever. And so hit me, what can I do to make it better for you? Let me know on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, and I would love to see you there. But to the show today, and obviously I would never have favourite guests on the show, that would be wrong. But I'm totally thrilled today to welcome a personal favourite of mine, in the form of Whitney Book, COO at HelloSign, now a part of Dropbox. And for those that don't know, HelloSign is the company reimagining how you approach your most important business agreements with their award-winning e-sign solution. As for Whitney, she directly leads the organization's go-to-market efforts, including sales, marketing, business development, and customer operations. And Whitney's also an advisor to companies funded by the YC Continuity Fund, focusing on enterprise strategy, go-to-market strategy, leadership, and execution. And if that wasn't enough, Whitney's also on the board of Akata, building the global standard in identity verification. And finally, prior to HelloSign, Whitney spent close to five years at Box, where as SVP of Global Marketing and GM Enterprise, she took on all of marketing globally for Box and was responsible for reshaping the company brand from SMB to Enterprise. But before we dive into the show today, ever feel like you really can't connect with your prospects or have an organized workflow to get deals closed? Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform, supports sales reps and their managers by making it simple to humanize and personalize communication at scale, automating the soul-sucking manual work and dramatic increasing the productivity and efficiency of all revenue generating teams. You can check them out at outreach.io forward slash Sasta to chat with them and receive a free copy of their new book, Sales Engagement, How the World's Fastest Growing Companies Are Modernizing Sales Through Humanization at Scale. And speaking of connecting with your customers there, the question is, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them today and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And last but by no means least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success and current we're talking to Eric Road, strategic advisor at Aplos. Aplos is software to help you grow your non-profit or church, attract great donors, automate everything and get instant insights, all while growing your donations and your impact. Hi, Harry. Create and protect a great company culture. If you're the one who is involved with what it feels like to work at your company, create an environment where you'd like to work. To build that culture for everyone, be willing to have hard conversations and be humble when someone needs to have a hard conversation with you. Love that, Eric. And building a great company culture and listening is key. And have a listen to how using a solution like the combination of WePay and Chase can mean payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of Harry. And so now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Whitney Book, COO at HelloSign. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Wit, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things from many different people, but thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you today. 
Well, I'm the excited one, but I do want to start with a little bit about you. So tell me a little bit of context. How did you make your way into the wonderful world of SaaS and come to now be one of the leading COOs with HelloSign? Well, I started in SaaS really at my time at Box, which I joined in early 2016. And that was really the timing in the market where the SaaS evolution was taking place. Box was then a quite small private company, and I joined to help build the enterprise business for them. They'd been predominantly selling at that time into SMBs. And that was kind of the wave of change from on-premise software to SaaS software, mostly, I think, founded and I guess the ground broken by Salesforce. And it was just starting to take off, but it was still the time when there was a lot of confusion and fear, particularly on the part of CIOs of, oh, really, can I put my data in a server that I can't touch? I don't know. So it was an exciting time to be on the front lines of the new and emerging trend in technology. I absolutely love that in terms of that taking off of the technology itself and the company. I do have to ask, though, you saw some incredible hypergrowth during that period at Box. How do you think that experience maybe impacted your operating mentality? And were there some big takeaways for you? Oh, a lot of big takeaways. I think the scale and rapid growth is, first of all, one of the most exciting things to experience, at least for me. I love fast pace. I love high energy. I love change. So for me, that's the perfect environment for me to be in. But I think the takeaways for me are that you also have to watch for burnout. You can sustain that pace for a long time. At least for me, I can do it for several years. But at some point, hey, you do need to take a break and realize that it's not normal to run a million miles an hour 24-7 weeks and weeks and months and months on end. So that was one of the takeaways. I think it does. It's good for the body. It's good for the mind to every once in a while kind of take a small break, even if it's a day to just recoup and refresh, if you will. And then I think another key takeaway was that those kinds of periods of fast growth and scale are the way to potentially earn your unfair share of a developing market. And so they're windows of opportunity to be taken advantage of and not to be overlooked. So I think there's kind of a combination of run fast and rest once in a while that I think is really a great learning for me out of that period. Well, I knew we'd go off schedule. I didn't quite expect we'd go off schedule this quickly, but I'm too intrigued because you know we have employees both in the fund that I have and then also with the show. And often they say, no, I'm fine. I'm just tired. My question to you is, when kind of observing your teams today, how do you determine between tired and potential burnout? How do you determine between the two? Because they're very different. And what are the signs of the burnout? Yeah, a really good question. I think part of it is when I see somebody that's falling a little bit too much into routine and maybe resisting taking on a new challenge or kind of a lack of engagement where they're withdrawing a little bit and at the same time they feel tired or seem tired, that starts to me to reek of burnout. And that's where I'd love to just say to that person, you seem like you could use just a little bit of time off, maybe take a day and go do something where you're not on technology. It's funny, I had a really great aha moment earlier this year where we'd just been through a mass period of crazy work schedule. And I went skiing in Lake Tahoe, Northern California. And I was on the ski slope thinking about, wow, you really can't be on your phone and ski at the same time. Like you're kind of forced (laughs) off the grid and it just makes you appreciate nature and And it was just a wonderful afternoon. I just felt like I got all this refreshment in a few hours. It was so powerful. So I don't know. I think there's something kind of magical about that. And it takes one who's maybe experienced it to show one who hasn't that, hey, do this once in a while. It's a good thing. No, I totally love that realization when it comes to skiing. And I have to admit, I struggled to ski without the phone, let alone with the phone. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's a bad thing. I do want to start this day on a topic that I I know we're both very passionate. And it's the theme of exec leadership. And I guess it's starting really from a base level, I'd love to hear in your mind, what does true 
truly successful exec leadership look like to you? You know, there are so many books written about this topic, and I've come to perhaps my own view on this, that I think a great successful executive leader is somebody who has the following combination of skills, is an outstanding communicator, a very active listener, an empathetic and vulnerable leader, so that they can really bring people along for the journey. There are so many executives that I feel are so focused on success and the end game, and maybe their minds work faster than most, and that's why they're in the position they're in, that they forget to bring everyone else along and make them part of the journey. And so while it's so important for a successful leader to set a North Star, to really establish that vision and communicate that vision, it's just as important to make sure that your people are also seeing what that North Star is and why it matters to the company so that they can rally behind you and rally with you and be with you in the trenches when times are not as easy as others. So I feel like all those things of really connecting with your people, bringing them along and being empathetic and um, a great communicator is just, uh, those are the things that stand out to me as the most important. Can I ask, how can you check with your team in terms of their continuous alignment with you towards that North Star? What are the signs that maybe they're not as aligned as you are or they're not in step with you in terms of that progression to the North Star? Great question. I feel like setting goals that are aligned toward that North Star are really important. And goals are, you know, I know a lot of people whine about having goals and it seems like a pain to have to put them together. But in actuality, they are the way to ensure, particularly as a company gets bigger, that everyone knows what we're doing and why we're doing it and how it ladders up to the ultimate mission and goal of the company. So first of all, set great, clear goals and make sure people understand what their work contributes directly toward that North Star. If they don't feel aligned to the goals of the business, then they're going to get disengaged. They're not going to be as passionate about it. So make them feel like their work is really worthwhile. Show them why it's worthwhile. And then I think the the way to tell when things maybe aren't working is if you're in tune enough to know the things your people are working on and the kind of obstacles they're hitting, then if those are not the things that are directly aligned to the goals we already talked about, then we got a problem. And then we just need to realign and recalibrate. So I think there's that's also part of the great communication, right? It's got to be two-way and make sure that the dialogue is happening regularly enough to know if things are going off track. I totally agreed in terms of remaining on that track. I guess, again, off schedule, so unfair of me, but I'm always struck when kind of setting goals and really structuring them. How do you get that balance of ambitious, but slightly achievable and still possible, but then also not too easy that they're hit within a much smaller time frame? How do you get that right balance in the middle? Oh God, it's so hard. <laughs> it is really hard. And, and we have not always gotten it right. I haven't always gotten it right. It is finding the balance. And that means you're probably going to stray on either side of the right line. If you make them too aggressive, you risk morale, right? Because you won't hit the goals. But if you, it's your, to your point, if you make them too easy, then there's no motivation. So I think you kind of have to triangulate. And at least this is the way I think about it in my head. If, for example, if I'm trying to figure out the right revenue target for the next year, then I'm going to look at, well, if we were just on the same trend line we're on today, where would that put us? That's one input. If I look top down at like the really ambitious goal and the desirable top down goal, the aspirational goal we'd like to hit, that's another point of input. And then there's sort of the bottoms up of given the capacity we have, the bandwidth, the other priorities, what do we actually think we can accomplish with the resources we have? And that's sort of a third input. And then I sort of use those to triangulate and find the right middle ground between them. And that seems to have worked pretty well for me the last several years. So that's been my latest technique that seems to get me as close to that right balance as I can, which is not to say I'm perfect by any stretch, but it seems like we're getting better at it. 
I mean, it is such a hard question to ask, and then to ask it when it's not on schedule. I mean, what an incredibly <laughs> horrible interview. I, I do want to ask about the team behind the goals themselves, and especially the exact team who sets them. Because a lot of founders who I meet in the very early stages of company building have a lot of questions when it comes to hiring the exact leadership. And really, there's three that predominantly come up. The first is, when's the right time to really start building out my exact team beyond just us, the founders? How do you think about the right time? Well, I think, first of all, and I'll credit actually the founders of HelloSign on this front, part of it is recognizing when you as founders have perhaps run out of runway in a certain area of the business. So for example, Joseph and Neil, who were the co-founders of HelloSign, Joseph is really the product visionary and Neil is the technical visionary. And the two of them did a phenomenal job of building a product that got very early product market fit, high levels of traction and growth. And I think their realization of wanting to bring me in as COO was, well, we haven't scaled an organization at this level before and we're growing really fast. Um, So that's piece one. And piece two is I think they realized as well that it was the time to start investing in sales and marketing. And that was an area of expertise and experience they didn't have. So from their point of view, they were looking to bring in a partner, a third partner who brought the exact skills they didn't have. And I think that was a really, really wise and, I don't know, timely thing for them to do when they did. And at the time I joined, we were about 40-ish employees and, you know, just kind of single digit millions in revenue. So that's kind of, I think, what a good founder or set of founders need to be thinking about is when are we starting to hit a bend in the curve on growth that's going to challenge the capabilities and experience we have where we benefit from outside experience and knowledge to pair with our own. So I totally get that inflection point. My next subsequent question is, okay, you see that kind of bend in the road and that potential inflection point, but you're still a small, very fast growing, but still a small startup with 40 people. How does your Joseph of the world convince an incredible seasoned status exec like you to join a small startup at the time, what would your advice be to founders in terms of bringing on those incredibly talented, experienced execs who've seen and done it before? Well, I think it depends on the exec. I I do think that there are some executives who feel they do their best work and are happiest in a very large scaled organization once they get there. And I don't know that all executives will naturally scale down to startup level. You have to be scrappy. You have to build from scratch. You have to adapt as you go and you don't have all the same resources at hand when you're in a small startup that you do when you're in a big established company. So not everyone will make that journey. I think the ones that will and the ones that can be attracted by the startups like HelloSign, this is certainly true for me, are the ones that show so much promise and have a product that people clearly resonate with, that there's some level of proof of revenue and product market fit. That's like an enticing opportunity for someone like me. I've done that several times now. That's kind of my MO, actually. Join a company that's small, help it grow and scale, go through a success exit and then go and do it all over again. And that's, I've kind of done that three or four times in my career now. And so that's what I want to do. And I think that there's a myth that the really seasoned executives will only look at already proven, even still early stage companies like the unicorns in the, in the Valley. And I actually think the most seasoned execs that do really well in the scale environment are looking for the pre-unicorns, right? The ones that are not yet the proven unicorn and can be the one to help make it such. And certainly that's where I'm at. And the other thing about it, me is I love looking for the underdog. If I really believe that the company and the product have the wherewithal to take the leadership role or take a very, very unfair share of the market, that's exciting too. Because then you get to prove to the world why this thing is better than the thing they thought was the best thing. You know what I mean? 
I totally get you. And it's awesome to hear. I, I guess the one point that I'd love to expand upon and hear your thoughts on is, as you said, sometimes it doesn't always work when seasoned exec spins out from the large incumbent, but they think it will do and they think they want to work in startups. So my question is to you, if you were putting yourself in the shoes of a founder, what questions do you think would reveal whether a seasoned exec who wants to join a startup has that startup fabric and culture within them to be the adaptable and flexible and kind of ownership centric person that you need to be maybe more in a startup? I don't know if I know the exact questions, but I think what I'd be looking for if I were the CEO hiring people and testing for that, I'd be looking for answers to questions like, okay, we're trying to launch this new product. It's never been launched in our organization before. You have a resource team of two and a budget of X, which is some small number of dollars, euros, or whatever your currency is. How are you going to launch and make this as successful as though you had a million dollars to spend? Answers to that kind of question or the questions that come back to a question like that are really telling. If somebody just can't think out of the box about how to do this without a team of 20 and a budget of a million or $10 million, then you got the wrong person. I mean, I think the kinds of things I would want to hear are questions from that individual like, okay, if I only have a team of two, can I have them full-time for a month to really plan the most optimal launch? What other successful avenues of launching products have you done in the past that maybe I haven't seen before? Can we leverage the investor community that we have to go take this? I mean, just a whole slew of questions that might uncover, yes, a lack of experience in doing something in a really scrappy way, but might uncover a sense of curiosity and willingness to consider and creativity. And I think those are the qualities that really matter when you're trying to look at somebody who's coming into a smaller organization. No, I totally get you. And you really see that kind of mental plasticity with that thought process revealing. I do want to move though one layer down because that's kind of the advice itself on scaling out and building that initial exec team. But we've seen recently the rise of a certain role. And you mentioned it when we, we spoke before and you said there's the new role of the CIO. So talk to me, what is the new role of the CIO? Well, it's been a really, really fun thing to watch over the course of the last 10 years because I think it's not like CIO is a new role. It's been around for a long time as we've become more and more dependent on technology to run our businesses. But I think if you look pre-10 years ago, the CIO was typically reporting into the CFO. It was very much a cost center. The whole goal was to run as lean and cost-effectively as possible and choose the technologies that solve the most critical problems. And by the way, the user experience was a total afterthought. And we've just seen the role completely shift. And I think largely because of the emergence of SaaS software and smartphones and apps. So the whole consumerization of IT phenomenon where users get to choose what they like and they know how they like to work on their personal stuff, they bring those expectations to the workplace and couple that with now the ability of a technologist or a CIO to be able to try software before they buy or to listen to the whims and delights of their users of what tools they like to use the most, that's a great informant that they didn't have before. And so now I feel like the CIO, who often is reporting direct to the CEO and has a seat on the executive team, is a guide toward what will make the user experience best, not only for the employee, but for the customer. And if you can make an awesome experience for the customer, then you're more likely to win their business. And that has a direct impact on revenue and growth. So it's no more a cost center, but a potential revenue generator and innovator. And that's just a complete fundamental flip from where we used to be. And as often as CIO stands for Chief Information Officer, I 
think it also now stands for chief innovation officer. And I, I think that's just a very exciting place to be. Can I ask, with this, I totally agree with you in terms of the excitement around that, but with that kind of very transformational shift into potential revenue driver almost, how does that change its position within the structure of the C-suite and particularly with the communication pathways that it has and maybe even its relationship to the COO? Yeah, so I think it definitely has changed the reporting structure. I think maybe five, six years ago, we started to see a shift where CIOs were less and less reporting into the CFO for the reasons we just talked about and more frequently reporting to either the COO or direct to the CEO. And I just think that means that CIOs finally sort of have this freedom to impact the world in a way that they couldn't before. And they do become a strategic driver of the business strategy and how it is. We're seeing also the emergence of the chief digital or chief transformation officer, which are kind of in a similar vein of looking at how do we take age old processes or ways of doing business or ways of engaging with customers and flip it on its head. Let's turn this around and make it all about the experience of the end customer or partner or whatever to attract more business and more engagement. And that to me is just completely different than how we used to look at it. Whereas like, okay, well, I'm just going to pick the system that's the safest and we'll train the users on how to use the stuff they hate later. So that has really changed, I think, the perspective of the CIO, but also how the rest of the C-suite looks at the CIO. And I think we've also seen an emergence where the CIO becomes the strategic business partner to the line of business leaders. So the head of marketing, for example, marketing has never been more technology-centric than it is today. And the marketing leaders need a really strong partner in helping to evaluate and deploy and optimize the technology that supports the marketing efforts. So now you've got the CIO, instead of locked in a basement somewhere in a data center, trying to save money is now the most strategic partner in helping to figure out how technology becomes a strategic tool and weapon. So completely shifted. No, and listen, I I love the shift. And as you said, I couldn't agree more in terms of the excitement around that shift. I I do want to discuss also the role of the COO because I had Claire Hughes-Johnson on the show before and we discussed how to differentiate between good and great when it comes to COOs. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. For you, what do you think separates good from great in terms of the CEOs available today? Well, uh, first of all, I think we kind of have to talk about what COO even means because I've found it very pretty widely from company to company. And in some cases, it truly is, you know, the O is for operations, right? Chief operation officer. I feel like in many companies, it truly is about operations. And then you're talking about corporate planning and finance and legal and the things that really make the business run smoothly under the covers. And in other cases, like mine, for example, the COO does have the corporate planning stuff, but also has some or all of the go-to-market functions. And in my case, that's sales market business development and customer experience. So the definition matters, right? So in my case, when most of mine is about scale and go to market, then I think good to great means something about really looking for opportunities to put processes in place, but God, not for processes sake, like just enough process to make things more efficient so you can move faster, but not so much that it slows people down. And I think that's a bit of an art form, to be honest. So I think that's one element of good versus great. I think another is really being a great partner with the rest of the business. For me, going back to my partnership with the founders, Joseph and Neil, the three of us really run the business as a partnership and we recognize in each other the strengths we have. You know, Joseph really looking at product vision and how to take product to market and Neil with what technology and architecture needs to look like and how we build great quality product. And for me, it's the how we market, sell and service our customers. So those three things coming together are pretty magical if we can treat them like, wow, the three of 
of us are better than one plus one plus one. You know, one plus one plus one in this case does not equal three, it equals 10. And so how does a great COO interact with the partners in the business to really try to get a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts, I guess, is it's not very practical advice, I suppose, but the way I see it. No, listen, I, I love that kind of the whole being more than the sum of its parts. I, I do want to ask you, you said about implementation of processes there, totally needed in the scaling kind of journey, so to speak. I guess my question to you is, and it's quite a granular one, in terms of the implementation of a new process, how long do you determine is long enough to really know the effectiveness of a process? And how do you think about whether to stick or twist, so to speak, on a new process when you're not sure it's working or not? You know, this is where emergence of agile computing, bear with me for a second, because I, I swear it's relevant. Agile development has introduced a totally new model of building software, right? So we used to build in six, nine, 12 month release cycles, release the stuff and then figure out what was wrong with it, and go back and fix it. But if you were waiting for a new feature or a fix to an important thing, you might have to wait for another six, nine or 12 months. And of course, with agile development, we've moved to a model where we iterate and we move very rapidly and we release new software every two to three weeks. And it just gives you a constant ability to check in and you set milestones or sprints or whatever along the way, and you can course correct much more quickly. And I think that same methodology is very appropriate for planning and processes. Why wouldn't we have near-term short milestones that are effectively progress bars that let us check in and say, is this working? What's working? What's not working? And course correct all along the way. And it may look like a more crooked path, I guess, when you get to the end game, but the journey is much more more satisfying. And I think you're much more likely to get to a good endpoint. So let me give you an example. When we started looking here at HelloSign for, let me back up a step and give you some context. We're very, very fortunate in that most of our sales are driven from people expressing interest and raising a hand and saying, I want to talk to someone. I want to see a demo. I want to try the product. That's a very luxurious position to be in that will certainly not last forever. So we needed to put in place a process to start doing outbound sales. So reaching out to companies that don't know who we are or haven't yet engaged with us or haven't raised a hand and educating them and helping them understand how they can benefit from what we have to provide them. That's a totally different motion and a very different kind of engagement model. And last thing I would want to do is say, oh, well, let's start this tomorrow. And then a week later, go, did it work? This is a months, if not years long journey of developing that muscle. And so instead we look at, can we identify early successes where maybe it's just the rate at which an email gets opened or Maybe it's the, from there, how often does an email get responded to? If we've had an email responded to, what's the likelihood someone will pick up the phone if we call? You know, those are all kind of progressive milestones that indicate we're on the right path. And I think you have to do that with any process that's more than super simple. And I think it lets you kind of figure out if it's working over the long haul and, and you kind of make decisions along the way rather than wait for one big event to tell you if it succeeded or not. It's super interesting to hear you say there about the nice position of excessive inbound, but also kind of realizing the need to build outbound. And my question to you is often we hear the importance of the need to hire for six months ahead of where you're at. Given your kind of many incredible experiences in different hypergrowth situations, would you agree with that hire for six months ahead? Would you say, actually, if you're early stage, you can't always have the luxury of doing that to your burn rate? Would you say, actually, it needs to be 12 months? How do you think about that hire for six months ahead? You know, I actually think it's more like, well, let's talk at what level we're talking about. I think at the individual contributor level, it's probably more like three months ahead because exactly, you don't have the money as a startup to have the luxury to hire that far in advance. You just don't have the bank account. So when I think of support, for example, customer support or technical support, where you have to have staff to answer tickets and answer phone calls, that's probably a three-month ramp time for somebody to come 
them up to speed. So hiring three months in advance is just fine. I think the same thing is true for a salesperson. Engineers probably a little closer to six, perhaps before they really start making full impact. Executives are definitely a six month lead because it takes a long time to actually put things in place that really start to show success there. And so I think maybe it varies a little bit depending on the level of role, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And it's actually a brilliant segue because I did want to ask in terms of the ramp time and really making sure someone's ready and prepared for success in the organization. When it comes to the COO, I often hear founders say, I've never hired a COO before. And so I'm not really sure what the onboarding process should be, how it should be structured, what it should look like. How do you think about kind of best practices for onboarding a new COO? Oh, and Joseph did such an excellent job when I came on board. So the good news is I have a really good model to draw from. I think the first thing was we were super clear early on what we were going to do to split duties and functions. So we had clarity of role and responsibility. And I think that was so key. If we were just partnering on everything together and neither one of us really owned anything, I think that would have been really difficult. So clarity first of roles and responsibilities. And then what Joseph did so well was for the things that he was handing off to me, he did a very thorough documentation of where he saw those functions standing, where he saw things that were working well, where he saw things that weren't working well, perspective on the individuals and the leaders within that organization, what his hopes were for where the organization would go, and was able to walk me through that function by function, which just gave me an incredible insight into what he'd been able to accomplish so far and where he saw the need for bringing someone like myself on board. So I think that was crucial to us getting off on the right foot. And then I think it was my job to pick it up from there and ensure that I was doing those same things I talked about earlier about the qualities of a great leader, active listening, being an empathetic leader, starting to establish what is the North Star and how are we going to get there? And what to each of the individuals and managers that are in the functions I took over, asking them what they thought were the right things for that organization to do. And I think the, the last thing I would say there about successful onboarding is make sure that you don't make decisions too soon. I asked Joseph when I came on board for a 60-day decision-making reprieve. I am not going to know enough to make good decisions. And if I make decisions without the right insights or information or whatever, I'm going to make wrong ones. And I don't want to do that too early. So will you give me the latitude of not making any decisions for the first 60 days? And and trust me, it was really hard because I like to move fast and I like to get stuff done. But I did my damnedest to hold on to that and to really take my time and bounce my thinking off of Joseph and the people that I worked with to try to get a handle on how do I do this job in a way that's going to keep the company moving in the right direction, not yank us off course accidentally or willingly, you know, not make any massive shifts that might cause morale issues or whatever. It was a journey and um, I had to take my time doing it. And I think that's one of the best things that a CEO can do for an onboarding COO is to let them participate and experience that journey and support them along the way. I absolutely love that 60-day decision reprieve and couldn't agree more with you on that. I do want to ask it because you said there about the structure and the metrics of what has to put in place and you were all kind of moving forward. I guess my question to you is when I spoke to Clara at Stripe, she said actually her biggest challenge post the onboarding period was keeping up with the insane hiring demands in terms of just numbers and velocity. So would you agree with Claire there? And how do you think about such a difficult balance of the pace of the hiring, yet also the maintenance of that quality high bar with hiring every new candidate? Oh, it's so hard, Harry. And especially I think in Silicon Valley, when you're trying to hire engineers, there is such contention for hiring great talent there. It's really, really difficult. So yes, I totally agree with Claire that that contention of trying to hire quickly and maintain the high quality bar. And I think there's a couple things. One is going back to your earlier question of, do you need to hire six months in advance or three months in advance? You got to make sure you 
you have hiring capacity. And that means you've got to be thoughtful about how many recruiters you need to have on staff or how many external agencies you work with to make sure that you can feed that pipeline for hiring. That is like critical. And the second thing I would add to that is that there has to be an agreed upon framework up front for how many people you need to have in the interview process. There's tons of studies that show anything more than like six is a waste of time. So don't have four repeated on-site visits with four interviews every time, right? It's just exhaustive for no purpose. So have a designed process that you agree to up front with the various hiring managers on how many people are we going to have? What representation do they represent across the organization? What kinds of qualities are we looking for in the role? Get alignment on the role definition and then move as fast as you can. And the last bit is make sure there's no friction in getting to the offer stage because in an area of high contention, you can get all the way through the interview process, but if it takes you a week and a half to get an offer out, you're going to lose the candidate to somebody else. And so I think the whole point of all that is how do we streamline to move very quickly and all that alignment up front with the cultural elements and the job requirements and who's interviewing is key to making sure we hire the right quality individuals on the other side. No, I absolutely love that in terms of streamlining the process. I guess my question too is you said that about minimizing friction. This is the last one before the quick fire. You said about minimizing friction. Where does friction normally come into play? Is it a difference opinion of on the quality of the candidate? Is it a difference of opinion on terms? Where do you find the barriers to actually producing the offer sit in the process? I think there are a few. I think one is if you have too many approvers in the mix. And in a small company, that's not usually going to be an issue. And chances are the CEO is still approving all the offers. But in a large organization, that can certainly be in the way. I honestly find the worst of it is lack of alignment about the level of role and therefore the skills and experience that are applicable to hire to that role. So to give you kind of an, a real example for us, we were hiring a ton of engineers. This is about, we're still hiring a ton of engineers, by the way. So all great engineers, please apply. But maybe a year or so ago, I think we just weren't aligned on what the definition of a junior, a mid-range, and a senior engineer were. And so we would be hiring for, say, a senior engineer, and we'd get somebody in who was a middle engineer. And so they didn't really qualify, and we would rule them out. But it's like, why? They're a great mid-level engineer. Why are we not assessing them as a mid-level engineer and hiring them that way? And so once we had that realization, we fixed it. Then we were able to move really, really quickly and hire much faster. So it's all about that alignment on expectations, I think, up front that can really get in the way and slow things down. Because you just end up in this mire of dialogue and trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong on whether this is the right candidate. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there in terms of too many cooks in the kitchen. But I, I do want to finish though on uh, my favorite, which is wit 60 seconds faster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Uh, how does that sound? All right, I'll do my best. Okay, so what motto or quote do you frequently revert back to? Okay, I have to give you two. One is focus, focus, focus. It just can't say enough about, and that's not just for an individual, but for the team. I feel like if you don't have a deliberate set of priorities going back to our goal setting conversation, then people will be all over the place and you have less likelihood of being successful if they're lacking that North Star, right? And the focus and determination to get there. So that's one. Make sure you have focus. And I guess the second one, I'm truly an optimist at heart. I wear, I like to say I used to wear rose-colored contacts. I don't wear contacts anymore. I had surgery, but now I wear rose-colored glasses. Believe that we can do anything if we put our minds to it. I think when you're in a startup, you have to have faith and you haven't yet proven that you can be a really successful big company and faith goes a long way. And so uh, I think as a leader, we can inspire faith and belief in the people we work with. And that's something I just love to do. What's the most challenging element of your role with HelloSign today? I think it's not different than it was a year, even two years ago. It's still about scaling and growing and maintaining the high quality bar of product, customer experience, and hiring 
tell me, what are your strengths and weaknesses? A hard one on self-reflection. My strengths are that I have tremendous energy. I don't need much sleep. I can go a long day. I can do it for a long time. And I'm an optimist. So I think I bring happiness to people around me. So those are, I definitely think is strengths, but I also have a tremendous ability to focus and get stuff done. I'm kind of a, I guess in Myers-Briggs terms, if people know that I'm an ENFJ. So that means I'm kind of a, a doer, but I have feeling and compassion and empathy along with it. And I obviously have a lot of experience in go-to-market type of stuff. And so I think I bring that expertise to the table. So those are a lot of the strengths I bring. And I love to help. I really love to mentor people and bring them along, which kind of speaks to why I like to invest and advise other companies. Sorry, this is a really long answer, Harry. Weakness is obviously I talk too much. But the second one is that I think I like to take on a whole lot of challenges and I love new, fresh challenges. So if I've been doing the same thing, which you need to do in running a business, by the way, for three years straight, I tend to deprioritize those things and I have to make myself make sure that those come to the top of the pile. That is hilarious. And uh, listen, most people don't have the self-awareness to know about the 60 seconds. So I think I rate uh, self-awareness in the strength by far. <laughs> I do want to ask that you mentioned that the element of kind of mentorship and investing there. In terms of the angel investing, how does investing also change the way maybe you think about your operational role today and how you really act upon it? Well, it's funny. I think of an investor role much the way I do as a board member role. And I'm also a board member on a company. It does shift your mindset for sure. I think when you're an operator of day-to-day, you're thinking about how do I get the best thing done? How do I get it done fastest? You're in the weeds a lot of the time. And I think when you're an investor or a board member, your job is to advise and to guide and to be a sounding board and to be a problem solver, but not to do. And that's a totally different mindset. And so I think I've gotten better as a leader because I'm an investor, advisor, and board member. No, I totally agree with that in terms of getting better and improving with the different insights that one gets. I do want to finish on the toughest of all that I think, but it's my favorite. And it's what you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning. Now, this can be the beginning of your time with Box. It can be the beginning of your time with HelloSign itself, but at the beginning of dot, 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 chosen time. What do you wish you'd known at the beginning that you now know? In a funny way, it kind of goes full circle back to the beginning of our conversation, Harry, about that take a break once in a while. I love running hard for weeks, months at a time, but every once in a blue moon, you just got to kind of step back. So I guess I would sum it up to say it's a marathon, not a sprint. So train, run hard, rest, do it again. I absolutely love that. I think I could do taking some of that advice. I have to say, uh, I'm actually very young, but I look at like Benjamin Button. So uh, clearly I need that help. But I I do want to say, Whitney, thank you so much for everything you've done with this episode. Seriously, I've enjoyed it so much. And really- Such a wonderful interviewer. Thank you so much. This is one of the most fun interviews I've ever done. What can I say? I told you it was amazing. And if you'd like to see more from her, you can find her on Twitter at Whitney Book. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. However, before we leave you today, ever feel like you really can't connect with your prospects or have an organized workflow to get deals closed? Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform, supports sales reps and their managers by making it simple to humanize and personalize communication at scale, automating the soul-sucking management your work and dramatically increasing the productivity and efficiency of all revenue generating teams. You can check them out at outreach.io forward slash Sasta to chat with them and receive a free copy of their new book, Sales Engagement, How the World's Fastest Growing Companies Are Modernizing Sales Through Humanization at Scale. And speaking of connecting with your customers there, the question is, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses 
audience is a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them today and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And last but by no means least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. And currently we're talking to Eric Road, strategic advisor at Aplos. Aplos is software to help you grow your non-profit or church, attract great donors, automate everything and get instant insights, all while growing your donations and your impact. Hi, Harry. Create and protect a great company culture. If you're the one who is involved with what it feels like to work at your company, create an environment where you'd like to work. To build that culture for everyone, be willing to have hard conversations and be humble when someone needs to have a hard conversation with you. Love that, Eric. And building a great company culture and listening is key. And have a listen to how using a solution like the combination of WePay and Chase can mean payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. And as always, I cannot thank you enough for all your support. And I can't wait to bring you a very, very special episode next week.